page 1799. I'll read the questions and answers for the catechism. There's a lot there, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just read it for us this evening. Lord's Day 31. This is God's word. Let us give our attention to its reading. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. This Lord's Day speaks of the keys of the kingdom, beginning at question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom? The answer, the preaching of the holy gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both preaching and discipline open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. How does preaching the gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? The answer, according to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to each and every believer that as often as he accepts the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of what Christ has done, truly forgives all his sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the anger of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? The answer, according to the command of Christ, if anyone, though called a Christian, professes unchristian teachings or lives an unchristian life, if after repeated brotherly counsel he refuses to abandon his errors and wickedness, and if after being reported to the church, that is, to its officers, he fails to respond also to their admonition, such a one the officers exclude from the Christian fellowship by withholding the sacraments from him, and God himself excludes him from the kingdom of Christ. Such a person, when he promises and demonstrates genuine reform, is received again as a member of Christ and of his church. Let's turn then once again to consider God's word and this eternal truth that we find here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in light of the teaching we see in the catechism on the church and the keys of the kingdom. Imagine there is a loving father who works hard 
to provide for his family, comes home to serve them each night as best he can. His hobbies are few, but he does one thing to occupy his hands in his spare time, an old classic muscle car in the standalone garage out back. He has involved his oldest son in the restoration and upkeep of this car since his son was a little boy. The young man has learned everything he knows about the inner workings of cars by watching and listening to his beloved father on those warm summer nights out back in the garage. The father has always seen it as an opportunity to get away from work for a while, but also to grow closer with his son. Unlike some fathers who have used this hobby to escape from their children, he uses it to teach and spend time with his children. This, of course has caused the son not only to revere his father, but to highly esteem the car. He has grown to see it as a meaningful token of the love and the friendship of his dad. And he cares for it just as he sees his dad caring for it. Because of this, when the boy acquired his driver's license around his 16th birthday, he never once seriously thought about taking the hot wheels out for a spin on his own when his dad was gone for the day. The car is not his. And just as important to him is showing his father that he knows how to care for the car. So this picture is a bit idyllic, right? Very few father-son relationships can be painted in such flowery language. But imagine then the excitement and the joy that this young man would have when six months after he has been driving on his own, one sunny summer morning, his father hands him the keys, not to the family minivan, but to the powerful and beautiful machine out back. Will the son abuse this privilege? The father trusts that he will not, for the car is not the son's. And he has been given the right temporarily to exercise the power of will over this car. Not only that, but if anything happened to the car, the son would surely be just as upset as the father. The point of this over-romanticized story about cars is that the son would operate the car in a certain way, right? He has learned from his father. He has seen his father treat the car a certain way as he has been sitting next to him in the shotgun seat for the many rides he has taken. He would remember the love that his father has shown him all throughout his childhood. And he would remember uh, the look in his father's eyes as he gave him the keys to the car. The church of Jesus Christ has been given keys. Not keys to a car, Not keys to a house, but keys to a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. These are not keys that we have earned. These are not keys that we have paid for ourselves. These are keys that are forged in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And they are given out of the pure grace of God. My point tonight is to bring us to this realization that we are to regard these as a gift. We are, these are not keys that allow us to determine what the church is to be doing, but rather the ministry of the church has been given to the people of God. These keys are the marks of the church, and the marks of the church shape the mission of the church. Keys get the engine to turn over. 
But at most points in history, keys have opened and shut doors. And this is what the keys of the kingdom of heaven do. They open and shut the doors of the kingdom of heaven. This passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 illustrates it for us tonight. So let's turn then to this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. First we see in verses 16 through 19 that the ministry of the church is something given. It's something that Christ has given to us. Paul begins this passage by talking about the miracle of the new birth and being in Christ. Paul says that this has become the sole reason for his mission in the world. What he was to spend all of his time doing. He wants people to experience the new birth. The new birth, salvation, being freed from the chains of sin and death. Being reconciled to God. This is what was most important to Paul in this life. Telling people that they have a problem Their problem is sin. They are separated from God, but God has provided the solution for that sin. He has given his son, Jesus Christ. Because of this, Paul was able to view the world with new eyes. He viewed the world through this new set of glasses. He saw his time on earth as being shaped by the hope that Christ had given to him. Paul says just earlier in 2 Corinthians that though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He's able to have this transforming vision of the world. The outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed. This is what God is doing. He is building us up spiritually. He is fitting us for eternity. He is shaping and forming his church in the world. For this reason, Paul could be Of good courage, as he says in 2 Corinthians. Even though he knew that his life would not be very rosy. Even though he knew his life would not be very enjoyable. He began to see people around him, not as uh, according to their status in the world, but their heavenly status. So he begins this passage by saying, From now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Paul is saying that, again, he no longer sees people according to their status in the world. Who the world would say that they are. If he stood in front of Caesar himself, he would see him simply as one not reconciled to God. And though he met very many Christians who had no earthly status, he would see them as having all the treasures of God in Christ. This is how Paul regarded people. Even his perspective on Jesus had to be reversed. Notice he says there, we once regarded Christ in this way, according to the flesh. Paul once thought that Jesus was a false Messiah. Why did he think that? Because he regarded him according to the flesh. He knew of him as one who wanted to be a revolutionary. This is who Jesus was. He started to try a revolution, but it all failed. It all fell apart because he was crucified. He was killed in public, executed. And someone crucified could not have been, in Paul's mind, truly the Messiah. But the resurrection changed all of that. Paul was not privy to the truth of the resurrection until later, But the resurrection changed. The risen Lord confronted Paul on the Damascus road. Paul began to realize that it's futile to see people only in regards to 
the flesh. Paul had missed the heart of the gospel message. He had missed the hope of eternal life. But in that moment, he was awakened. And he said, now I will regard people no longer according to the flesh. Then he he regarded people according to the measure to which God had acted upon them in reconciliation. That's important. That's the key idea here, what Paul is saying. Reconciliation. To those outside of the church, Paul engaged them in evangelizing, telling them the gospel message. This is the way of salvation. This is how you are saved. To those within the church, Paul engaged in teaching, in training, and discipleship, all flowing out of the gospel. It's so beautiful how he is constantly weaving these categories together of saying, you're saved in Christ and and you live in gratitude for what God has done for you. Your sanctification is dependent on your justification, not the other way around. You're sanctified because you are justified. And it all comes from Christ. This present creation, this present world, the order of this world, it is subservient to the new creation. It's subservient to the age to come. Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This new creation comes from God. It's something that comes to us, as we saw this morning, out of heaven. Just as it had been so in Paul's own life. It was only God who could bring this reality of the new creation to fruition in anyone's heart. The spiritual death of the old man could only be reversed by God's acting upon that person in grace. God reconciles us to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. But it happens through a ministry. Something particular, right? It's not just random. It doesn't just happen at any moment. It happens through a ministry. A ministry of reconciliation. That's what we have to notice here in verses 16 through 19. The ministry of reconciliation is that which Christ gave. He gave it to Paul. The Son gives this ministry to the church. That is to say, Paul did not sit around with a group of uh, critical thinkers or social activists or motivational speakers to think together about what would be the best way to go and build the church and change the world. That's not how it happened. The ministry of the gospel for Paul was that which was given to him by the same God who called him into this new creation life. On the Damascus Road. That also shows us uh, the precise meaning of this word reconciliation. It's not a general term that is connected to improving the world in a myriad of different ways. It's clearly derived from Paul's and the church's proclamation of salvation. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Have your sins forgiven Have them be washed away. Paul did not use the name of Christ for other ends. To change the world how he wanted it to be changed. But rather he went forth and he proclaimed this message. It's it's a, a message that had to be heard, right? How are they to hear without someone preaching? He proclaimed the good news of the ministry of reconciliation which God had given to him. We see then that 
this ministry of reconciliation gives way to the mission of the church. We see the mission is the mark. So what I'd like to do with the remainder of our time this evening is to think about how this ought to shape the church's activity as it participates in this new creation life of God, which Paul is so focused on, and how the ministry of reconciliation which God gave to the apostles and he gave to the church goes forth into the world. The church is the institution here and now which Jesus has given what he calls the kingdom, or the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And as we have seen, that the the keys open and shut the doors of the kingdom of heaven. Look at the gospel of Matthew to, uh, to show ourselves this. In Matthew 16, Jesus has an interaction with the apostle Peter, very famous interaction. We looked at it probably a couple of months ago. It's a hinge moment in the gospel, and Jesus says, Peter, who are people saying that I am? Peter says, a prophet, a teacher, uh, someone like Elijah. Peter, and Jesus says, but who do you say that I, that I am, Peter? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but only my Father who is in heaven. Issues a blessing upon Peter for confessing this, for simply saying who Jesus is. He has confessed the lordship of Christ, the supremacy of Christ in this world. He is Lord and he is Christ. Jesus says that he will build his church upon this profession. It isn't that a beautiful picture for us, that the church, the millions and billions who will be joined into the company under the lordship and the representation of this Christ is simply by those who profess, simply by those who say he is Lord. He is our God, Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. On this rock I will build my church. Peter is the first of this professing community. And then Jesus says this fascinating thing next. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So then what do we make of this, this fascinating statement by Jesus? We should notice that Jesus is clearly connecting this idea of the keys of the kingdom to the church. He's saying, I will build my church, and then he starts talking about the keys of the kingdom. It's not just any group of people that are given these keys. It's not Peter individually who is given the keys. It's the people of God which Jesus will be building and forming as his own. How do the apostles come to understand what Jesus has said? We can look to Peter for our answer. Peter went forth and, and the rest of his life, as if we take it as being an exercising of the authority of those keys, he went and he proclaimed this message of forgiveness, just like Paul did. Peter in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, he proclaims, Peter, what shall we do? Peter says, this is the Christ, you crucified him, but now he has been raised. What shall we do? Repent, come to this God in faith, trust in this Savior. The book of Acts gives gives us a peek into the life of the early church. What was the early church doing? It says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So how does this connect with the keys of the kingdom of heaven? I think we can look to the end of the Gospel of Matthew to connect these dots. As Jesus is ascending at the end of Matthew, he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. 
Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The book of Matthew tells us that Jesus was saying this to the eleven. Of course, the apostles. By this time, Judas has been gone. He gives them the authority that he has been given from from the Father. All authority has been given unto me. And so now I am giving you authority. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. In other words, establish the church, grow the church, teach and form, disciple. What are the means of doing this? Jesus tells us, how should you do this? By baptizing and by teaching the word of God. In other words, word and sacrament. These are the keys of the kingdom. This is how the gates of the kingdom are opened up. Jesus, the only way to the Father, told his disciples to go forth and declare the gospel and to baptize. It flings wide the gates of heaven. It's one of the reasons why in our worship services each Sunday we take time to recount the gospel message And usually I try to to make it a point to say, trust in this Savior. Look to him for salvation and no one else. For For if you seek salvation in Jesus Christ and in him alone, there is forgiveness in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is a particular moment where we see the exercising of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. A beautiful picture of what Christ has given to the church. This is what the, the church is called to do, to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments. It is these things that open up the gates of heaven and grant eternal life to all who believe. And isn't that a beautiful thing to be striving for? Isn't that something that is worth our time? Isn't that something that would keep us coming back again and again to have the assurance of the gospel, the assurance of grace? The wondrous gift of knowing this God. We see also that discipline is a key that has been given to the church. Matthew in chapter 18, if we'll reverse for a little bit. See in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus goes on to use this message again of binding and loosing. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He says this, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Notice that Jesus is expanding on what he has said in chapter 16, right? He is now, he was speaking to Peter directly with the disciples in the purview, but now he brings in all of his disciples talking about the authority of binding and loosing in the context of discipline. This is done not so that the church can be an exclusive club, not so that the the church can lord something over someone who has made a mistake, but so that the ministry of God's word can go forth and that God's people might realize that sin is a serious matter. It's nothing to be trifled with. Things like 
church discipline tend to grate against our ears and our modern sensibilities. It it sounds off to us. But it is rooted ultimately, and this is the important thing to know about church discipline, it's rooted in God's desire for us to turn from our sins. It's always exercised with a view towards repentance and restoration. And that's the important thing when we think about church discipline. Even though it seems odd, and to many Christians in today's world it seems odd, but it is so that God would restore us. It is so that God would help refine us and stave us off, stave off sin in our lives. And the prophet Ezekiel, the prophet reminds us that God does not delight in the judgment of the wicked. That's, that's not what God enjoys doing, but rather that the sinner would turn from his wickedness and live. The church has been given the authority to bind and to loose for the good of Christians. If anyone is caught in sin, all those around that person ought to be praying and working for restoration. If your brother, if your sister around you sins, pray and seek and work for their restoration. Galatians says we are to begin, how? In a spirit of gentleness. The prophet Jeremiah in the 23rd chapter lamented the fact that in Israel there were false prophets who were saying all is well. Listen to Jeremiah 23, 17. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. This is what the false prophets were saying. To anyone who was disobeying, who was despising the word of God, these false prophets were saying, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. And the ministry of God's word is, is so different than that, isn't it? It says, if you follow your own heart, that is exactly where disaster will come upon you. You must be shaped and formed by what God says. He has spoken to you in his word. He has spoken to you for your good. He has spoken to you so that you might experience the power over sin in your life. Follow this God. Take Jesus' yoke upon you. Have gospel obedience and gratitude. It's an easy message to declare, isn't it? The false prophets. No disaster will come upon you. All will be well. Your sin is not that big of a deal. It's an easy message to declare, and it's an easy message to believe, but it is not true. When we make little of sin, we make little of the holiness of God. When we make little of sin, we make little of our Savior. So then, the word, the sacraments, discipline, all have been given to the church for the salvation of God's people, for the salvation of the lost. In this time and between the times, between Christ's ascension and his second coming, this is what the church ought to be primarily focused on doing. For it is in doing these things that we find God speaking and God acting. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We see how the the sacraments have a, a proclamation of the gospel attached to them. It's for the good of all of those gathered to see that just as surely as you experience or you see the water and touching the one being baptized, as surely as you take the bread and drink the cup, that is how you may know that in Christ you are forgiven. There's a proclamation of the gospel going on and it is God making his appeal 
to the world, his appeal to the sinner, his appeal to his own people. He is saying that he is willing to forgive the sins of all who turn from their sin and who trust in Jesus. Ultimately, we see, just as we sang before this sermon, we see that all those who trust in Christ have been appointed to do so from the foundations of the world. And still, when the gospel is preached, God is making an appeal in some mysterious way. Yes, only those who have been elected will believe, and yet God makes his appeal through the proclamation of the gospel. To those who are already believers, God is making an appeal to us to continue in the faith. This is why the the ongoing preaching of the gospel is important in the life of the believer. God is making another appeal to us that we would continue in the faith. He is telling us to see the supremacy of Christ in all things. Know and understand that to belong to God is better than any wealth you could experience on this earth. The preaching of that word has transforming effects. This is what Paul and Peter, the apostles, did and what they trained the church to do. All scripture is God-breathed. It's effective to train us in righteousness and in holiness. Why? So that we may be equipped, what? For every good work. The equipping of the saints through the proclamation of the word. So then, the calling on the church is to proclaim the gospel of grace. And by the government that is given to the church, the elders and the deacons, we are to guard the purity of the church in doctrine and in righteousness. These are the marks of the church and the mission of the church is to execute the marks of the church so that we may be built up, so that disciples might be made in Christ, so that the great commission might be fulfilled. Jesus has given us his marching orders. Go, make disciples. In doing so, God shapes and forms his church through his word. This is the ministry Christ has given to us. Just like that moment when that son sees in his father's eyes as his father hands him the keys. So we should realize as our savior has given us the keys that we are to treasure this ministry. Treasure the things which he has appointed for our good for our building up, for our edification. A great, wonderful parable that Christ gave in Matthew 22 summarizes, really, in many ways, the work of the church of flinging wide the gates of heaven, exercising the power of these keys. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's the, the feast of the gospel that spread. God says he is willing to forgive. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. 
And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to, to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Go out into the streets, go out into the world, proclaim on the main roads and invite to this feast as many as you find, for the feast is spread. The gospel of God's grace, God stands ready and willing to forgive. And the church is even called to exercise the discipline of the church for those who have not truly come to Christ in faith, they are to exercise the binding and the loosing there as well. Some closing thoughts just as we bring this to an end this evening. This ought to show us the importance of the church in an age which sees in many ways the church as superfluous. The New Testament knows of no contrast between being saved, as people like to put it today, and joining the church. There's no contrast between the two. The church is utterly important. The church is essential in the life of the Christian. We see also that ministers exercise the authority of the keys in their office, not in their person. It's not the goodness, the righteousness of the minister. It's not who the minister is in and of himself that allows him to announce this gospel message. It is the calling of the church, the authority given to the church, the exercising of the office of the minister. And lastly, we say that the church is not just a place where things happen. It is also a people who are made. It's a people who are made. As we are ministered to through the word of God, through the sacraments, as we are kept until the last day by church discipline, we become a people who are made. And that is the way that God involves us in the story of redemption and what he is doing in the world as he calls us to go out into the world to carry the aroma of Christ. It's important to understand that as the people of God, we are not the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. His life lived, the death that he died, and the resurrection to which he was raised. That is the gospel. But we carry with us the aroma of Jesus. We carry with us the testimony of who God has made us to be. This is why our sanctification, our commitment to living in gratitude to God, though it is subsequent to our justification, is so important. This is why we ought to take our pursuit of holiness so seriously. This is why we ought to lean in to what God, how God commands us to live and, and praying in faith that the power of the Spirit would come upon us, that we may live in obedience to all that God has commanded. The church is not just a place where things happen. The church is a people who are made, who are then appointed to live in this world, to go out into this present age, this present age that is marked by sin and death and darkness, by hatred, by betrayal. We are to carry the aroma of Christ 
Love of God, love of neighbor. Because God has built us up in the faith. Because God has ministered to us through the means of grace. Because God has opened wide the gates of heaven. Not through something undefined and and nebulous and invisible. But through the church. This beautiful institution of the church where we can belong. Where we can see other believers who have tasted of the gift of forgiveness. Where we can be built up. Where we can be encouraged. And we can know the forgiveness of sins declared to us being reconciled to God so that we may see the surpassing value of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we give our lives into your hands. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your son. We thank you for another Lord's day, being in your house, being assured of what you do for us in and through him. Hear our prayer this evening. Build us up this evening. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the keys of the kingdom. We thank you for all these things. Bless us as we go then. In Christ's name, amen. Let us sing.